You're listening to the Ultimate Game Faces Podcast with your host, Rich Key, delivering insight into the fascinating life stories of his featured guests. He's a nationally respected sports marketer, a creative genius, and the ultimate baseball fan. He's Andy Strasberg. Let's welcome to today's episode, Andy Strasberg. Welcome, Andy. Thank you very much, Rich. I have to start this off by simply telling you, in all honesty, I've been stressed out over the past day trying to decide what to discuss with you, Andy. Uh, the portfolio of material that you bring to any discussion and conversation is beyond words, and I can only compare it to the choices you'd find, let's say, on the uh, – the best buffets on the on the Vegas Strip. So I, I stopped beating myself up, and I simply said, I'm going to go to the heart of it, and I know what's important to you, and that is relationships. So if you don't mind, I would like to just kind of focus in on your relationships, and I know how important that is, what you've taken away from the game that you've been blessed with. So um, let's let's talk about the people and your relationships. The first one, a gentleman from Ontario, Canada. You played a vital role in the career of the most famous mascot around, San Diego's famous chicken. Andy, what comes to mind when you think of Ted Giannolis? Uh He was the first, he is the best, and uh, over 40 years, he's still doing it which is incomprehensible when you think about an artist. Uh, in baseball, you know, what's the longest that a player can play? What is it, uh, 20, 25 years? Uh, and uh, Ted is, uh, is a comedic genius, and, um, and I need to explain what I, what I mean by that. He can entertain... A, uh, a packed ballpark of 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 fans. And the thing that makes him so incredible is that the guy in the front row who spent the most money for those tickets, he's going to be entertained as well as the guy in the upper deck who has spent the least amount of money He's going to laugh just as hard, and he's going to get the joke. So if if you can understand that uh, the San Diego chicken is entertaining a, such a broad scope of individuals, and it works from the, the top seat in the house all the way out in left field to the guy that's sitting over the dugout. Is it true, Andy, that he stopped Elvis in his act that Elvis saw him in the aisle entertaining the fans and Elvis doubled over in laughter. Absolutely. And he has had many of those experiences. He recognizes what is what buttons to push on <laughs> entertainers, but he's also smart enough to realize that, on occasion, he needs to hold back. But whether it's a rock and roll con- concert 
And in that particular case, it was Elvis Presley. And Elvis Presley started laughing incredibly because, if I remember correctly, uh, Elvis was doing a, uh, a song. I think it was a Jerry Lee Lewis song. And he started talking, he started singing about a chicken. And then there's the chicken and he's dancing. And uh, Elvis just went down on a knee and and, and he stopped singing and he was so entertained. Uh, but, you know, we, we are uh, we are so blessed that the uh, the best uh, and the first mascot that changed sports uh, is still with us and can still entertain at a drop of an egg. Aha. I'm sorry. <laughs> Andy, I, I could speak firsthand knowledge. Uh, thanks to you and your help, you helped organize a photo shoot that you and I did with, with Ted a few years ago. And we met up at your home the first time I was able to meet Ted. And in the process of going over some serious uh, conversation of how we were going to approach the photo shoot, Andy, you were in the process of helping him get dressed with his costume. And we're all in the same room, and we're discussing this. And at the point where he was almost finished dressing, you help him put the head on. And as I'm talking to him, what turned into a serious business discussion, <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't handle it. I walked into your kitchen because – it was a flush of emotion for me as a baseball fan, one, to meet Ted, and then second, to collaborate with him on a project. But I could not handle seeing the chicken in costume, and I'm discussing something with him seriously. It, I was thrilled. I never thought I would have a chance to work with that gentleman, and reality hit me in the face. Once I had to talk through that beak to him, it was mind-blowing. So I will always take that away from everything, and it was a absolute fun day beyond comparison. Yeah, uh, communicating with uh, Ted when he's in costume, and I have had many, many experiences uh, before he goes out on the field and on the field. And one of, here, I'll, let me set the scene for you if I can. Please when, do. When Ted, uh, came back as the, uh, San Diego chicken after having a disagreement with the radio station, KGB, uh, we did a, uh, an hatching. Uh, it was, uh, and, and Ted was placed in a styrofoam egg that was probably about 10 feet high. And it was brought into the ballpark in front of 47,000 fans uh, to the music of uh, – uh, it, it was appropriate music. I forget what it was. And, oh, it was 2001. That's what it was. And he, he comes in in the egg, and the egg is on top of an uh, armored truck and escorted by San Diego California Highway Patrol police motorcycles and their sirens are going anyway we get the egg off of the truck and we place it at third base now we could not practice this once we put ted into the egg 
all bets were off. We had no idea. Is this going to work? And the egg starts rolling around, and I'm shouting at the egg, come on, Ted, come on out, Ted. <laughs> and he's kicking, and he's trying to break open this styrofoam egg that's probably at least two feet thick. And all of a sudden, it dawns on me that the chicken is going to suffocate in this egg <laughs> in front of 47,000 people. And at that moment, he busts through, and the crowd, as they say, the crowd went wild. <laughs> it was an epic moment. I have to add one more thing about Ted and our experience the day that we did the photo shoot in Santee at the uh, chicken farm. He was in full costume, and you and I and Ted jump in the van, and we head over to the uh, egg farm. I've told the story numerous times. If there was ever a day that I wanted to have a police officer pull me over <laughs> for a burned-out blinker, it was that day because I couldn't imagine what that experience would have been for that officer. <laughs> I would have handed my license and registration over to Ted and said to Ted in full costume, please deal with the, the officer. I, you remind me of a great story. Let me share it with you very quickly. Uh, Ted, when he travels around the world to perform, he will pack uh, everything except for the head. That he actually uh, has in a bag, and he carries that on board, and he puts it in the overhead compartment. <laughs> in this one particular situation, he is in Atlanta, and he's getting on board a plane, and he's got to fly to another city where he's going to be doing another uh, performance. And he gets to the gate, and they say, you cannot take that. It's too big, and it won't fit in the uh, overhead compartment. And Ted says, well, I've done it so many times, hundreds of times, it'll fit. And they said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to check it. He says, well, I can't check this. So <laughs> Ted goes into the restroom and dresses as the chicken. Oh, comes back and hands to the uh, at the gate and hands his ticket. And takes his seat in the plane, and they, and there, and he sat in the plane for the whole trip. And of course, everybody on the plane was thrilled that they were flying with the chicken. Amazing, amazing. Andy, let's talk about life in New York. Was it Brooklyn? You grew up in Brooklyn, was it? No. And and stop trying to upset me. It was the Bronx. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, there's a there's a little Dodger blue that's still stuck in me. I I don't know how that happened. I'm, yeah, I'm, no, I I grew up in the Bronx. I actually grew up four and a half miles uh, from home plate of Yankee Stadium. And as it was probably around the age of six or so, you became a passionate fan of the Yankees. I did. I uh, and you know my dad was a, a huge baseball fan and obviously an influencer uh, to my love of the game. And my dad was a uh, New York Giants fan. In fact, the first game I went to was at the Polo Grounds, but I didn't want to be exactly like my dad. And so uh, the Yankees, uh, the Bronx Bombers, uh, that, that was the team for me. 
anybody that knows you, Andy, knows that Roger Maris is to Andy Strasberg what bread is to butter. Please tell us how the word rejuvenated impacted your life. Well, Maris was uh, traded uh, after the 59 season to the Yankees from Kansas City. And Sport Magazine came out with an article, and it was a cover story, and the title was Roger Maris Rejuvenates the Yankees. And I'm embarrassed to tell you, I was 12 years old, I had no idea what the word rejuvenates means. So I looked it up and I thought, how is that possible that one player can make a difference, can energize, make youthful a, uh, a baseball team? So I started to pay attention. And one of the reasons why I paid attention was that all my friends, without exception, were Mickey Mantle fans. And I, I wasn't a Mickey Mantle fan. And I think part of the reason why I wasn't a Mickey Mantle fan is I didn't want to be like everybody else. So when Maris came to the Yankees and played in the 1960 season, he was acknowledged as the missing piece and put the Yankees back into the World Series. And that really uh, resonated with me. I was uh, I was intrigued with this guy, Roger Maris, and nobody else wanted him as their hero. So I paid attention, and uh, as a lot of fans know, Raj won the American League Most Valuable Player that year. So that's the word rejuvenates. Uh, that that was the title of Sport Magazine, and, and that's kind of what hooked me into uh, following Roger Maris. Your goal from the very beginning was to develop or at least let Roger Maris know that you were his number one fan. And you went about it in a very passionate, polite, and respected way. Uh, I wanted, uh, as you indicated, I wanted to meet Roger Maris. And so I would get to the ballpark. Uh, this is, and it's important to note, this was after the 1961 season when he set the home run record and beat Babe Ruth. Uh, because 61 was the last year that my parents put the restriction on me that if I were to go to a game, I had to go with an adult chaperone, which meant we got there 15 minutes before the game, and as soon as the game was over, we left. And in 61, I only went to like three or four games. In 62, uh, the restriction was lifted. I, I'm 14 years old. I'm a man about town. And... <laughs> My parents allowed me to to go to Yankee games uh, without a, an adult chaperone. I went to 40 games, 4-0, and hmm. I would get to the ballpark very early, uh, between 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning, and the purpose of getting there early was to see if I could meet Roger Maris. And Roger would park his car and walk across the street to Yankee Stadium, and I was tongue-tied. I, I froze up every time. And I thought, how am I going to get to acknowledge and communicate with Roger Maris? And so I devised a plan. And the plan was a very simple uh, way of communication. I wrote a note. And so when Raj got out of his car and was walking across the street, 157th Street, to Yankee Stadium, the player's entrance, 
I'd hand him the note. And Raj would go into the ballpark. And then a couple hours later, the gates would open and I'd run out to the seats in right field and watch batting practice. And eventually, after a number of times, Maris recognized that this was not something that was, uh, not something that I took for granted. This was very important. And so what I did was um, I would always write about the game before, the upcoming game, and it was always positive. And I would sign the note, your number one fan, Andy Strasberg. And it got to the point, Rich, where when he would get out of his car and all the kids would come over for an autograph, he would actually reach over the kids looking for my note. And I am handed it to him, and, and that's how the communication started and then eventually uh, I started talking to him and then finally got up enough courage thanks to my friends to ask him uh, for a baseball during batting practice and he threw me a baseball and Rich I was shocked so shocked that I couldn't lift up my left hand and my right hand to catch it so the ball hit my shoulder rolled away another guy got it and Raj saw it and then went in to take some batting practice. And I yelled, Raj, Raj, I didn't get the ball. And uh, I remember he stopped and he spoke to Phil Linz, utility infielder. And Phil Linz comes running out to right field to shag some, ba- some baseballs. But he comes up to the fence. Now, for those fans who don't know, the fence at Yankee Stadium, the right field fence, it's only 43 inches high. And... He comes up to me and he says, stick out your hand. Ouch. (laughs) And I stick out my hand and he places a baseball in it. And obviously Raj had given him instructions how to do this. And I turned around to my buddies and I said, look, I got a baseball from Roger Maris. And they said, no, you didn't. We've got a baseball from Phil Lenz. Well, that was the beginning of asking. I eventually asked Raj for one of his bats and one of his home run baseballs. And I'll never forget his answer. As far as the home run baseball, I'm going to have to catch it. But the bat, he said, he would give it to me the next time he cracked one. Well, the team goes on the road. Actually, they came to California, played the Angels, and I'm listening late at night. Three-hour difference. My parents think I'm asleep because it's 11.30 at night in New York, 8.30 in California. And uh, I hear the Yankee broadcaster explain to the audience that Maris fouls one back into the upper deck, and he must have cracked his bat, and he's going to the dugout for a new piece of lumber. Well, in my mind, I'm thinking, could that be the bat that he promised me? Well, the next day, my best friend, Gary Baker, calls, And he says, did you hear the Yankee game? And I said, yeah, Yankees won. He said, no. Did you hear Maris cracked his bat? That's the bat he promised you. Well, I didn't say anything. The Yankees come in off the road. And I missed somehow. I missed him getting into the ballpark. So I had to wait for the gates to open at 11 a.m. And I run out to right field in the seating area. And here comes Roger Maris to shag some fly balls. But he walks directly to me, 
And he says, I've got that bat for you just before the game. Come to the dugout and I'll give it to you. Rich, this is the greatest day of my life. I can't imagine. I run to the, uh, to the Yankee dugout and as luck would have it, the security guard, I think he was seven and a half feet tall, 400 pounds, <laughs> was not smiling. And with as much sincerity as I could possibly muster, I said, Hi, my name is Andy Strasberg, good friend of Roger Maris. He's promised me a bat. He said I should meet him here. You gotta believe me. And the security guard says, Hey kid, settle down, will ya? <laughs> Just wait right there. And about 20 minutes later, here comes Roger Maris with my bat. And he hands it to me. It's a confirmation of a promise that my childhood hero made to me. And I was beside myself. I go back to my seat, and for the first time in my life, I wanted to leave Yankee Stadium before the game started because I wanted before, to go home with my back. Before somebody came up and said, uh, Roger wants that bat back. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm out of here. It was a, uh, it was a great day. I, I kept the bat. I stayed at the game. And when I came home, I, I woke up everybody in my house. And, uh, by then I had given my bat a, uh, a name as I have a tendency to give inanimate objects name. And, uh, the bat's name is Woodrow, but we all call him Woody. Appropriate, of course. Early on, you decided you wanted to be a part of that Yankee Stadium scene. And that went through the road of being a ball boy. And we sat down and talked over lunch one day, and you told me the story. With this episode, we always have cover art that will highlight the guest. And that usually would, if it's an athlete, it's an action shot or a personality, head and shoulder. On your cover, it's a close-up of Andy Strasberg's business card, Ball Boy. Go ahead, please tell the quick story about your baseball business card. Well, I realized that I wasn't going to be a baseball player at 12 because I didn't have the talent. And so what I decided to do is I wrote a letter to the Yankees requesting the opportunity for an interview for the position of ball boy. And the Yankees sent me back, uh, I guess it was a form letter and indicating that I had to be uh, 18 years old in order to be even considered uh, for the position of ball boy and have an interview. Well, I wrote the Yankees again when I was 13 and I got the same letter back and I did it when I was 14. And I'm convinced, either 14 or 15, that one of the secretaries of the New York Yankees opened up my letter, and she was familiar with who I was by that time. And in my mind, she held up the letter and turned around to the uh, typing pool, if you will, and said, hey, everybody, look who wants an interview for the job of ball boy. And all the... Uh, uh, the typist sang my song as if it was a Busby Berkeley movie, Andy Strasberg. Well, by the time I was 18, I'm convinced 
everybody knew who I was and what I wanted. And I got, and I got a letter back from the Yankees indicating the time and date of the interview for the position of ball boy. And before I went to that appointment, I went to a printer and asked for them if they would print up something very, very special and explain that I wanted a business card, but not just any business card. I wanted the business card to have the logo on it of the New York Yankees. And I remember the printer saying, you know, when you have artwork on a business card, it's very expensive. Because back then, you didn't have instant printing. So I invested the money and had 50 cards made. I go to Yankee Stadium, and they come out. uh, The gentleman who was going to interview me comes out, and he's now going to escort me back to his office. And at that moment, I hand him my business card, and he looks at it, and he says, what the hell is this? And I said, with all due respect, that will be a valid business card after this interview. And it turned out that it was. I got the job, and it was uh, December of 67, and I got the job, and uh, that was what I thought was going to be the beginning of my baseball career. Unfortunately, uh, the gentleman who interviewed me lost his job, and when I called to see if if I still had a job, I didn't. Ownership change. Yes. Politics. Oh, no, <laughs> there's no such thing as politics in baseball. Never. Andy, during the years, we knew from what you have shared with us going forward, your dream was to have a job in baseball. But before that, you had college, and you went to college, and one of the changes took place in Yankee uh, in New York. They made a trade. Roger Maris went to St. Louis while you were away at school. Can you share with us the story that aligns with your passion for Roger Maris? Yeah, I went to... uh Akron University in Ohio, and I was uh, I was pretty proud of the fact that I had a friendship with Roger Maris. So I put a poster of Roger Maris uh, over my bed in the dorm, and my roommate. Um, and to this day, I still don't know what was going on in his mind. He put a poster of Raquel Welch over his bed the one where she's uh, doesn't have so much clothes on from 1 million B.C. Anyway, I'm telling everybody I'm good friends with Roger Maris. Maris, as you indicated, gets traded from the Yankees to the St. Louis Cardinals, and I'm devastated. You know, my guy, he's gone. He's no longer a Yankee. He's not even in the American League anymore. He's in the National League, and... uh and so the 1967 season starts and Roger Maris is playing for the St. Louis Cardinals. And one of, one of my pals in college realizes that the Cardinals are playing the Pirates. Um, and it was uh, May of 1967. And he said, why don't we all travel to Forbes Field and you can introduce us to your good friend Roger Maris. So we get in the car. 
it's about a two and a half hour drive. And I'm nervous because Maris had never seen me outside of Yankee Stadium. And we get to the ballpark about 20 minutes before the game, and I could see Roger Maris dressed in his Cardinal uniform warming up. And I am so nervous, and I got four guys from college behind me, and I try to get his attention. I go, uh, Raj, uh, Raj. And he turns around, he sees me and he goes, Andy Strasberg, what the hell are you doing here in Pittsburgh? <laughs> oh, I, uh, all of a sudden, you know, I, my chest swells up and the next thing that comes out of my mouth to, uh, Roger is, well, Raj, I had some friends from college that wanted to meet you. They lined up as if it was a wedding reception. And, uh, you know, this, <laughs> I, I, I was, uh, I was big time and everybody and, uh, had a quick conversation with Raj and wished him good luck. And, uh, I went out and I sat in right field and I, like a lot of baseball fans, I'm superstitious. And for me, the superstition is the number nine. That's Maris's uniform number. Of course. Uh, and he plays right field, and if you score in baseball, it is also the number nine. So I go out, and I sit in right field, and I sit in row nine, seat nine, and it's main nine. In the sixth, <laughs> in the sixth inning, Roger gets up against Woody Fryman, left-hander, and Fryman tries to sneak a fastball by Maris, and Maris connects hitting his first National League home run. I caught the ball. Whoa. My buddies are going crazy, screaming, and I am frozen. And tears are just, tears of joy are just streaming down from my eyes. And I can't believe this has happened to me. (laughs) And after the inning was over, Roger comes out. And he looks up and he goes, I don't believe it. And I said, I don't believe it either. And uh, co- with him coming out to do that, he had to run past his normal position in right field to make a point of seeing you to let you know that, that he saw it and he was as much shocked as you were. That's pretty cool. Uh, it is, and I do understand, it's a very hard-to-believe story. A very, very hard to believe story. And I don't know what the odds are, but I get it. <laughs> and I caught it. Andy, your entire encounter with baseball and the Maris family has one constant, and that's the truth. And that's what makes it absolutely special because you cannot write a script, um, of your your wishes to be involved in baseball, to have that friendship and have it to develop into what it did is amazing. You went on to eventually get a a job as vice president with the San Diego Padres. And eventually, if my story, if I remember correctly, you attended winter meetings in Florida and you were in a uh, conference room at the time and you were interrupted. Can you go ahead and finish that for me? Yeah, I uh, I got tapped on the shoulder by Jim Weigel, uh, 
one of the gentlemen that I worked with at the Padres, and he said to me, there's a guy out in the hallway with a crew cut that wants to see you. And uh, I knew that Roger had retired to Florida and lived in Gainesville, and I was hoping that it was Roger Maris, and uh, it was. And I was so excited to see him because I had not seen him since his last regular season game in 1968 when he retired. And uh, we started visiting, and I said, Rog, you've got to meet my wife. And Roger said, yeah, get her and bring her over. And he pointed to a table, and he said, I'll be sitting over there. And at that table was Whitey Herzog and Mo Drabowski and Dick Young, a famous baseball writer from the Daily News. And so I said, I'll get her and I'll be right back. And so I looked all around for my wife and found her at the pool and she was sunbathing and I got excited. I said, Oh, you got to meet Roger Maris. He's here. This is so great. You've never met him before. And, and come on. And she says, well, I can't go like this. And, and she said, uh, I, I got to get dressed normally, not in a bathing suit. I've got to put makeup on and do my hair. So she said, I'm going to go up to the room and I'll be down in just a little bit. So I go back to tell Roger that she's on her way. But they're talking. And I stand behind Roger and I'm waiting for a uh, a break in a conversation so I can step to the side and tell him. And I'm listening to the conversation, waiting for that break. And Roger's telling everybody at the table about this kid who was his fan when he was with the Yankees and how how this kid and he became friends and how this guy who's now working for the San Diego Padres and how proud he is. And at that moment, I thought, how is this possible that not only did I get to meet my childhood hero, not only did we become friends, but he's proud of me? That night, uh, we all went out to dinner, uh, Roger, his wife, Pat, my wife, and it was one of the first times that we had a conversation that I somewhat acted like an adult instead of a crazy fan kid. Yeah, that was extremely memorable to me for a lot of reasons. Uh, the maturity of establishing a relationship it went to another level with Roger. December of 85, sadly, Roger passed. Could you share with us what happened? Yeah, in December, I uh, was watching television, and I knew Roger had been ill, and I, uh, I immediately made arrangements to fly to Fargo, North Dakota. I, I needed to attend the funeral. And uh, I left San Diego, and it was like 78 degrees, and I get to Fargo, and it was probably 10 degrees. Um, and Fargo is where Roger grew up and spent a good deal of, of his youth there. He didn't live there for all of his life, but his early years, and it was his wishes that he would be buried there. And so I went to the funeral and uh, I waited until everybody 
had paid their respects to Pat Maris, his wife, his widow. And when I saw the last person go up to Pat, I then stepped up and saw her, and she was so happy to see me. She hugged me. She thanked me for coming all the way from San Diego. And then she said, have you ever met the kids? Roger and Pat had six children. They're all adults at this time. And I said, no, I've, I've never met the kids. And so she turns to the kids. And keep in mind, we're still uh, in the church, and the funeral service had just concluded. And Pat says, kids, I want to introduce you to Andy Strasberg. And Roger Maris Jr. says, I know you, your dad's number one fan. Well, I started to get so emotional, and I didn't want to be embarrassed. Uh, the only thing that I could think of is I said, you'll never know how much your dad meant to me. And Roger Maris Jr. didn't miss a beat. And he said, you have no idea how much you meant to our dad. And the next day, I excused myself because I was starting to cry. And the next day, I sought out the family to apologize for how emotional I got. And uh, I found them, and I said, someday I hope we're able to be under better circumstances. And um, I thought that would be it. I would never see the Marises again. And I was okay with that. I thought that that was an appropriate ending for an unbelievable story that started off when I was 12 years old in 1960. I look back and I think of where you, where that friendship was confirmed was that Roger took the time to come out to the winter meetings to let you know how proud he was of you obtaining that job in baseball. That was his effort. If there was any doubt that he tolerated a, a young kid that pestered him or not, you never pestered anybody. You just followed what you wanted to do, and you were extremely respectful throughout that process. I will tell you that I was respectful, but I was also – one of my characteristics is persistence. Mm -hmm. And it, that's how I got the job with the Padres. It took me four years and I traveled around the United States three times, and I sent letters to every ball club. So uh, it, I I don't I don't want to say I was a pest, but whatever whatever that word is, just before a pest, I was persistent. Well, maybe you were politely aggressive, and people appreciate that. I'm going to use that from now on, politely aggressive. <laughs> Thank you. It's it's fair enough, fair trade. I'm going to ask you something about um, – I, I want to steer for – I'm going to come back to this. What I almost forgot is there's a new book about Andy Strasberg coming out next spring, and it's entitled My 1961. And we just touched on the surface in our conversation here today of what's going to be in that book. Anything you want to share as a preview? Uh, it's uh, 1961 was an incredible year for me. Uh, I went from 12 to 13. I was a teenager. 
I was uh, obsessed with the Yankees, Roger Maris, but I had other things going on in my life too. Girls, television, Superman comics, collecting baseball cards, uh, rock and roll. Did I mention girls? Eh, it's yes. probably perfect to mention it twice. <laughs> uh, I had, I had a lot of, uh, life changing experiences, coming of age experiences. So this is, uh, a combination of all those things that happen. And it's, uh, it, it's written in my 13 year old voice, uh, about those things. So it's not in hindsight and the maturity and the things that transpired after 1961 this is just 1961 it's going to come out sometime next spring and when the publisher stepped forward and said we love this and the reason that we love it is because there's been a lot of books written about 1961 but those books have been written about uh, from broadcasters point of view roger maris wrote one researchers teammates uh, but there has never been a book about 1961 from the perspective of a 13-year-old kid. And so I am elated that this is going to hit, um, that it's going to be published and people will get to understand what went through my life at that particular time and how I became enamored with Roger Maris and all the other things that I think, to a large degree, shaped me uh, into the person that I am, maybe, maybe could identify with some of the things that happened to me. And it would be baseball fans across the board. You don't have to be a Yankee fan to fully appreciate it. Absolutely not. It, uh, if, if you like baseball, if you love baseball, or if you know somebody who uh, – loves or likes baseball, I I think it's going to be an easy read and an enjoyable read. And as I said, I I think there'll be a lot of touchstones that people will be, be able to identify with. Now, I take issue with the cover photo because it's a picture of you and Roger Maris. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> but uh, as I'm sitting here in our conversation I think what it should have been is you and I should have gotten together and met halfway and had lunch in Anaheim, and I would love to take a picture of you at home plate with Roger Maris's bat on your shoulder. It's, well, where, I, he, it's where he cracked it. Don't tell me you've already had it done, though. No, I, I, I haven't <laughs> had it done, and it, it's a great picture. But I the the picture on the cover of the book is a very – a pathetic 12-year-old me, uh, and and what I wanted was to see if I was ever lucky enough, if I could have my picture taken with Roger Maris, what it would look like. And so what I did is I went into those photo booths back in the 60s where you pay <laughs> a quarter and you get four photos, and I went into the booth with a magazine and turned to the page of Roger Maris and I'm holding it up so you can see Maris swinging and me mugging above the picture. It's very, <laughs> very pathetic, but it's I, real life. It's it, real life. That's I thought it. I thought that would be the closest I would ever get 
to meeting Roger Maris and having my picture taken with him. Andy, let me take you back to Fargo. Soon after, or at some point after Roger's passing, the family decided to honor him. Can you share with us that, please? Yeah, it was the next June, and there was a, uh, a dinner in Fargo, and about six, 700 people attended, and the Maris family invited me to come out. It was a fundraiser for the Roger Maris Cancer Center uh, and Shanley High School. At the dinner, and I was fortunate enough to sit at the head table, they had a number of speakers, and the speakers were friends, family, and teammates, and <laughs> and one guy representing the fans, and that was me, and I represented the fans, and I actually told the story uh, that we touched upon in this podcast of how I met Roger and how I caught his first National League home run and how he gave me the bat. And so it it was, again, I thought, what a perfect ending to my experience and my friendship with Roger Maris. And after I was done, the Maris family gave me a group hug, and we went to a private reception where the other speakers were gathered, and I spoke to each member of the Maris family. And at one particular point, I was uh, talking to Randy Maris, Rogers, one of Roger's uh, four sons. And Randy and I were having a conversation, and it kept going. And I thought, is it possible that my friendship with Roger Maris is now going to be carried on through his son? And the answer was yes. It was, and so much so that Randy and his wife, Fran, and my wife uh, and I, we would take vacations together, car trips together. We even took, uh, we went on a cruise together. And so, yeah, it the, the relationship with the family uh, continues, continues to this very day. I've got a quick question for you. I'm thinking back when you were politely aggressive with Roger in right field during batting practice, and you asked him a question, could you have a game-used bat and a home run ball? And he told you, yes, I'll give you the bat, and but the ball you're going to have to do yourself. And that you caught in Forbes Field years later. You have both those. Which one is more cherished, the ball or the bat? I'm guessing the ball. Well, you're wrong. Uh, the, the ball, while it's astronomically incomprehensible to think of the odds, that was very, very fortunate. But the bat had a bigger impact on my life. And as I said before, it was the confirmation of a promise. And that was so meaningful to me and there was no luck involved it was Roger's understanding of how important that was to me and remembering that that was a desire of mine so uh, that that Woodrow or Woody as everybody mm-hmm. in my family refers to him is uh, it's the most important keepsake of uh, all my Maris items. 
Andy, in closing, I'm going to simply just share with our listeners. If there was one example of the appreciation from the Maris family about the sincerity of your friendship and your intent with Roger, their dad and husband, it came through on August 3rd, 1990, when you took a phone call from Fran and Randy Maris. Tell us about the call. Yeah, I, uh, I did. I got, <laughs> and I, I'm sorry that I'm fumbling a little bit, uh, because out of all the things that has happened to me with regards to Roger Maris, including catching the home run, what I'm about to share with you is really hard to believe. The phone rang and picked it up, and it was Randy and Fran Maris, and they called from a hospital in Florida to tell me that Fran had just given birth to a baby boy and that Randy and Fran wanted to name their new son, Andrew, and they wanted me to be Andrew's godfather and never, ever in my wildest dreams did I ever think that my childhood's grandson would be my godson and my namesake. I can't add a single word to that, nor should I. Andy, I thank you for being our guest today. And I thank everyone for joining us. We'll see you next time.